Bloody Elbow presents the Hey, Not the Face podcast. Your host is Bloody Elbow's chief financial columnist, John Nash. Hello and welcome to another episode of Hey, Not the Face with your host, John Nash, and your producer, me, Steffi Haynes. And today we are dedicating this episode to a listener Q&A. And we have to let you know right up front that most of the content in this episode comes from our good friend and listener, Alan Thompson, who spent I don't know how much time putting together an insane list of questions for us to pose to John. So, uh, John, are you ready? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're ready to investigate him for being the Unabomber. <laughs> we also do have a question from an anonymous fighter and something from Josh Barnett. Now, we're, we're referencing actually a tweet from Josh Barnett, but it was so interesting. We're putting it in the show. So we're going to go ahead and start with Alan Thompson's questions. The first one being... How much were UFC fighters making from sponsors prior to the Reebok and Venom deals? I realize there is a lot of variation, but if you have a range or some examples, that would be helpful. And how much are they losing compared to what they were or are paid in the Reebok and Venom deals? Well, this one's a real hard one to answer because there is a wide a wide variety of the, the fighters, wide variables, what fighters would make off their own sponsors. Uh, we do know, and, you know, I've talked to, you know, managers and fighters and stuff. Some of the, the guys were making $50,000 a fight, uh, hundred even $100,000 a fight. Uh, Brandon Schaub and stuff talked about how they had six figures. Vitor Belfer was making a lot of money on sponsorship. Uh, recently, Branson Gowney, remember last year, talked about how he lost a million-dollar deal because the UFC had a, an exclusive sponsorship in the cage with the cryptocurrency. So there was a lot of fighters, the more well-known fighters that appeared constantly on, let's say, the main card on TV. A lot of them were making tens of thousands of dollars per show when they were on TV. And on top of that, a lot of them had sponsor, side sponsorship deals because they were such recognizable figures that would pay them monthly deals, right? So... But the majority, as the roster is growing, the majority of fighters weren't getting those deals. And especially as not only is the roster growing, the UFC was putting the sponsor tax and then, and then having exclusive sponsors. She couldn't get them. So it's hard to say how much all the fighters are losing. But if you were a recognizable fighter that was on a main card, uh, especially a main event, you were likely making anywhere from 50000 to to 100000 per show from sponsors. So a lot of money from sponsorship. Was that sustainable? I don't know. But even today, there are fighters that make that could get sponsorship deals that pay them more than what the UFC does. Now, that said, there are some fighters that do better under the current system. The UFC, there are some fighters that the UFC will give sponsorship deals to from their, the, the people they work with. A lot of them have a budget uh, that says that that money goes to fighters to be representatives of the, the product, you know, something that's in the cage, 80% of it might go to the UFC for being in the cage, 20% of it, 10% of it might be a set aside that that's the budget we want to pay for fighters to basically do single spots or show up at events for. And so some mid-tier fighters are making more probably today from that sponsorship than they would have in the under the previous era. But overall, I think 
net sum, you can, it's a it's a loss for the fighters. The net sum is that the whatever hundred million the UFC makes from sponsorship now, uh, a, a bigger a much bigger portion of that would have gone to the fighters, except for the fact that the UFC has basically pushed all the sponsorship out. You know, when I worked for Tap Out, and it was in their heyday when they were valued at a two hundred and fifty million dollar valuation back in like two thousand and eight that year and and for a couple of years moving forward before they started hitting the the real skids when the misman- money mismanagement happened but they had two solid years where they were really golden and they i know for a fact that they offered Kimbo Slice Kimbo Slice's deal was for uh right at 100,000 i know for a fact that Dan Henderson got somewhere in the neighborhood of i believe 75,000 for his deal. So uh, the, I can say for sure that the big names at the time were making big bang. Um, Mike Swick told me that, um, remember back in the day when they were first experiencing that boom off of tough, a lot of the sponsors of the UFC would also sponsor the fighters, specifically Toyo Tires. And Mike Swick was sponsored by Toyo Tires and a watch company and some gear company. But anyways, I remember the first or second time I ever interviewed him, he told me he made $70,000 off the fight that he had with David Loazzo just in sponsor money. Yeah, no, there was – if you talk about the big-name guys, the Dan Hendersons, mm. the Fader Emelianenko, Fader Emelianenko had a huge affliction, yeah, you remember? Yeah, yeah. Those guys were making hundreds of thousands, up to like half a million dollars. Per fight, for walk, yeah. For, yeah, Henderson. for walking the cage, plus yeah. those huge deals year-round. Now, what happened is some of the deals that a lot of the fighters are getting, these, these fly-by-night companies were coming mm, in, yeah. they weren't paying. But overall, the you know, the – yeah, some companies aren't paying, but some are. And after a while, you weed out the ones that aren't paying. So the idea that, oh, we want to get rid of these people that are paying doesn't seem like it's, you know, it's it, that doesn't hold water. Mm. The truth was for me that what the reason the UFC got rid of that is that was money that they thought the UFC thinks that we're producing the product. We're producing the value here. We should be getting the money from the sponsorship. And because you have, the fighters can get their own sponsorship, it's taking money out of our pocket. And that's yeah. why they, they stopped it. Yep. And I feel like you're right. That bottom line, it was a net loss for sure. All right. His next question. Boxing promoters are apparently funneling money to sanctioning bodies through some form of lobbying. Can you please explain how this works? In boxing, there's a, a something called a sanctioning organization. And those are the, the organizations that control the titles. They're supposed to be, because the Muhammad Ali Boxing Reform Act, they're supposed to be separate from the promotions, and you cannot compensate them. A promotion cannot comp- give money directly to the sanctioned organizations. That's illegal, right? So we, they put that in because it's to, to make sure that they're, uh, they're objective rankings, that they, that they rank people objectively, and the people by merit get a title shot. So to get around this, a scam that basically what they use to get around it is that there will be groups, right? Let's say we lobby on your behalf. We we make a case for your fighter. You pay us as a lobby group, kind of like in, you know with Congress and politics. You pay us as a lobby group, and then we go to the sanctioning organization and we make the best case possible for your fighter why he should be rated or rated higher or get a, a mandatory shot, something like that. Well, what you learn is that those 
those lobbying groups, those those organizations are not completely separate from the sanctioning organizations. So there's a law that says you cannot directly compensate the sanctioning organization. So the, the promoter can't own the title or can't give money directly to the sanctioning organization. So they give the lobbying group, but then you find out that that lobbying group might have ties to the sanctioning organization where a family member maybe owns it or a lower member of the sanctioning organization makes it. In other words, it's a way to get around so you can give money to the sanctioning organization. And that's it's it's unfortunate, and it's been discovered a couple of times, but it's uh, it'll, it's probably something that'll keep popping up because there's not enough uh, there's not enough regulation and enforcement to prevent that from happening. Sounds like we need oversight, some sort of oversight committee. Well, what we need is the uh, both most of the athletic commissions, the ABC, mm-hmm. the uh, Association of Boxing Commissions. Do do more of their job. They have a lot of power actually over the sanction order. It was granted to them in the Ali Act. They claim it doesn't, but you can look at it. There's stuff they could do to enforce, uh, to basically threaten the sanctioning organizations if they get caught doing this. That we're going to not not license you and basically not you know we're not going to make you an, uh, a regulated sanction organization that's allowed to work in the United States. So there's stuff they could do to enforce it. But the, the the athletic commissions, as much as they're they come out down hard on fighters often, they do not, for financial reasons, they they seem very hesitant to get involved with sanction organizations and promotions. Do you have any theory why that is? Well, because that's where the money is, and you know they're, the the sanctions the athletic commissions make their money by having events in their, their state. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the reason. Remember, you know, that's the reason UFC got them to stop reporting. Uh, commission payouts. Um, Nevada even said it. We do not want to lose fights to other states because we report the payouts. They do not. They do not want to fully enforce on these these big, especially big promotions, because those promotions can just then uh, can just a uh, commission shop. They can go to another place and hold the event there, and that place will then get the revenue and the and the tax revenue and the money that's used to support the commission. So they'd other you know, turn a blind eye and have it take place in their state. There's a solution to this. We've It's been proposed several times as a national federal commission, which a lot of the state commissions apparently uh, oppose, but uh, the, the Bo- Professional Boxing Amendment Act, which was a bill that was supposed to fix and strengthen some of the things with the Ali Act, would com- create a, a national USA boxing commission that would oversee all the commissions. And so you can't shop around for a, a commission that's going to do what you want. Because so they're all going to be forced to be enforced by the same rules. So basically an oversight committee, like I suggested. Well, exactly. Look at that. You should, look, be, on, you should be out in D.C. Look Look at me. Look at me. Yeah, I'm yeah. reading your mind, but you're not giving me credit for it. I, I'm giving you credit, all credit. It was your idea. You went back in time and, and gave that idea. See? To... So we're going to move to a Bellator question that he has. Specifically, why do you think Bellator and PFL struggle financially is it just because the ufc has superior talent and if it's not that what are bellator and pfl doing wrong that they can improve on and and even if it is that even if it is that ufc has superior talent i'm adding my own part to this question is there anything that they can do to improve on their product, even though the UFC probably does have the superior talent? I know this because you've mentioned it several times in the past. Well, I think the number one reason that they, well, there's several reasons they struggle financially. Right. I mean, one, 
is that the UFC has got the first mover advantage. They are they, they came out first. They're the big promotion. Everybody's aware of them. Their brand awareness is so much bigger. So they they have a the fan base. People are aware of them. They do not have to sell themselves to the general masses. The other promotions have to convince people to tune in, convince people that they even exist. Two is the UFC basically probably has a better brand, a better image. You know, they it's the ultimate fighting championship UFC. It has, uh, I mean, what is a Bellator? It's not, to me, it's not the great, the, the best, uh, the best brand, the best name, right? You don't really quite understand what it is. So that's a problem too. The presentation is probably not as good with them. Although Bellator does have some, they do some kind of Ryzen type presentation at time that probably appeals to fans in a way that UFC never does. So that has that going for it. And PFL has the tournaments, which is a little different. But the number one is probably the brand. And also, the UFC does have the superior talent. Because the UFC is bigger, has more money, and has locked in the talent, people people migrate to watching the best. They want to see the best. Why is the XFL struggling compared to the NFL, right? Mm-hmm. Why do, you know, why do, uh, in, 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 in football, in European football, soccer, why does the Premier League beat the other leagues? Because people want to watch the best and the biggest, right? And so they will tune into that. And if people are aware and think that the UFC has all the best fighters, and they generally do, maybe not. If we pit them head to head, maybe the UFC fighters lose because, you know, where you are positioned in the public's eye and in rankings might not be true about what your real ability is. It, rankings really just are – what they are is they, they tell you of what you've done in the past, not what you're going to do. In the, they're not predictive. They're reflective of what you've done. So, but the UFC has all the number one fighters, has 80%, 90% of the top 10 fighters, just the overwhelming majority. So if you want to watch the biggest, best fighters in the world, you're going to turn in, tune into the UFC. What could help the other promotions mostly is getting a chance to sign some of those fighters, right? Uh, they're, they're going to have to probably pay higher wages and risk losing money. But those fighters, for the most part, it's not that the Bellator and PFL don't want them. It's for the most part, those fighters are unavailable to them, right? Uh, a lot of younger fighters, prospects want to sign with the UFC because that's where you go to prove yourself the best and to get the renown because all the top fighters are there. But what you need is access to those top fighters that they can then get out of the UFC and come to your promotion and get some attention on your promotion and get fans paying for a product uh, with your promotion. And that's the part that seems to be missing. All right. His next question, influencers, they seem to have changed the landscape of the business world. Do you see the influencer slash YouTube star thing in boxing and coming to MMA with Jake Paul as a temporary thing, or will it last a while or possibly even become permanent? And do you think it has the potential to create any lasting changes in MMA specifically, you know, because Jake Paul keeps pushing the issue. I feel he's doing it as a performative thing, but who knows, maybe something. I I mean, it's, it's a really far stretch, a really far reach, but maybe you've got something here that I haven't seen. I am probably the last person to ask about this. I have, I really have no, I have nothing to say about this because I don't understand the concept of influencers. I'm, staff, you know, we are, we are way too old to understand this stuff. This is a, of a, this is a generational divide is very obvious here because it doesn't make sense to me that people are even intrigued by this stuff. To me, this is um, celebrity boxing, which didn't draw that big 
I mean, we've always had somebody boxing, but it never was a that big a deal when I was, you know, when I was younger. But now it's, you know, Jake Paul, who's not even a real celebrity in my book. This is not like we're getting, you know, a, a Leonardo DiCaprio in the ring, right? Right. This is some dude was on a YouTube channel, and and yet he's this big thing, and I don't understand it. So if you're asking, does it change the landscape of the business? Do you see it being, you know, coming into MMA? I I really have no clue because I don't understand it in the first place. Okay. I first of all, we would have even in celebrity boxing, we never had a Leonardo DiCaprio level celebrity. I mean, we had the Tanya Hardings, the Screeches. Exactly. That's what we but look got. how small they were. What I'm saying is like the level of attention that Jake Paul gets, you would think it would have to be a major star. But he they were the Paul brothers, weren't they Disney stars already? Didn't they do something with Disney? No, I don't think so. I thought they had a YouTube channel, and one of them reported on suicides in Japan. Well, I thought that they, was their, their... they do have a big YouTube footprint, but I thought that they were also Disney kids. I could be mistaken. I get all these kids confused because, again, as you noted, we're old people. <laughs> yeah, so... this this is a this is of a landscape, a world that we do not know anything about. The generational divide is here. I am, I am a, uh, I'm a, I'm a. An old swing guy and and the Rolling Stones, the Beatles have shown up, and I just don't get it. Okay, all right, yeah, I'm I'm not a little past that, but uh, <laughs> well, what, I'm saying as an the, example, really, I'm yeah. a Rolling Stones guy, but yeah, but yeah, I, I can dig the Rolling Stones, but one thing though, I think that is kind of catchy here is that Jake Paul seems to be have some legitimate athletic talent and his brother as well. He's thriving in, in professional wrestling and it's because he's actually pretty decent at it. So I think the, the combination of having a really established fan base on social media, specifically YouTube, I, I'm not sure if there's a Disney connection crossover or whatever. I keep thinking there is, but I could be mistaken. But the other thing is there, they seem to have some athletic prowess and that might be, the key there is that they seem to be athletes yeah i mean they're they're definitely more athletic better fighters mm -hmm. than most people that do this but right but you know i mean you know mickey rourke boxed and I, he didn't get this much attention well if there wasn't social media when mickey rourke boxed though yeah well that's the big again that's the generational vibe because i did not grow up in a world where social media was that's social media technically is a pretty recent phenomenon yeah. last 10 years no. Are you kidding? MySpace came out in 2004. We are 19 years of MySpace. The forums, technically, the forums and probably the chat rooms, the AOL uh, uh, chat rooms, that's probably really our introduction to social media. The cell phone texting as well. I mean, things, I feel like the digital revolution was the the harbinger of all of this. Well, I think that technically the social media, the, the amount of people, uh, MySpace maybe came out in 2004, but very few people were taking part of that. And, uh, you know, so the social media of the, the Facebooks and stuff, that really kicked off, if I remember right, like 2007, eight, And really, so, and it took a while for people to get used to the concept. So I, I don't think it's, for the grand scheme of things, it is fairly recent. Still, two thousand. If you if your your benchmark is two thousand and seven, let's let's say that the boom of Facebook, the boom of yeah. MySpace, 
Um, if that's your benchmark, that's still 16 years. That's almost two decades. It's not as recent as you think. It's just because we're old people, John. Well, that's exactly. It's one generation. <laughs> it's one generation. All right. So next question here. Someone recently asked Dana about the low ratings his Power Slap League has gotten on TV. He said that Power Slap is more successful on social media and digital than on TV. He said that the clips do 10 million views on TikTok, much more than other sports. Is there any way that Power Slap can survive and even be profitable that way? It seems highly unlikely, but who knows? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, first of all, I, I don't think it has much of a future. Its ratings are that low. But I think Dana has, there's some truth to what Dana White says. And Zach Arnold of Fight Opinion has brought this up on Twitter a couple times. The, the primary reason, uh, the, the TBS network stuff seems just to, to be there just to give it some legitimacy so they can get better sponsors. The primary focus has been Rumble, the, 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 um, the what, U2 rival or whatever. Right, the platform. And, and the, the, the platform. So that's, that, the, the traffic on that is probably a better indicator of how well this is doing. And maybe it's doing well or not, I don't know, but I know Rumble is really in the Dana White business, right? You had a... Uh, one of the Trump sons who's big into Rumble, he tweeted about slap fight. So they're, they're heavily promoting it. So uh, I'm not certain how, I shouldn't say Dana White, I meant Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump Jr. was yeah. tweeted about it. So they're they're heavily pushing it, the the power slap. Like I, the problem is I can't remember the name of it because I don't follow. I, I really just try to stay as far away from the slap stuff as possible. But it is possible that it's making some money. But the pushback and the poor ratings, I do think it's, it's going to be they might they'll make money off this because the cost has got to be astronomically low. What they're paying the fight the the slappers <laughs> ridiculously low. There's not much of an expense in this, right? And so if they got a lot of sponsorship and they get it out and make their money off that, well, they might make money. I don't I don't see its long-term survival of it though. It's not going to turn into another UFC and I mean the worst for it in some ways it's got congressional attention. A bipartisan two congress people sent a letter to TBS asking why it's on the air. Uh, and I think that's the, the the longest legacy might be kind of negative for Endeavor and, and UFC because let's say the Ali Act gets reintroduced to Congress, and I think it's very likely it will. It, that is the type of ammunition the supporters of the Ali Act want to point to is the power slap stuff because Congress might be so repulsive, like these people need to be regulated. And so I think that it's, it's a big mistake by them to push this power slap so much. Is Power Slap Endeavor? I thought Power Slap was um, Dana and Lorenzo's thing. I, I it, wasn't sure if it was Endeavor or not. Endeavor plays a part. They're one of the, okay. the, the five. It's Pilgrim, Power, uh, Endeavor, Dana White, the Pertitas, and I can't remember. I think it's just those four. It might be a fifth entity. I can't remember what it was. But all of them are working together at code. That's why UFC is constantly tweeting about Power Slap, pushing it. Got it. UFC, the UFC Twitter accounts and stuff. So, Got it. All right. So... Alan had a huge section that was basically boiling down to comparisons between boxing and MMA. And so I tried to condense it as much as I could. And so this next section is basically boiling down to one huge topic. So he basically says that boxing is ripe 
for corruption because of a lack of an overseeing body with a vested interest in protecting the sport. He says that top boxers do get paid more, but the best routinely don't face each other due to being under different promoters. And and, and we sort of see that a little bit like we're, I mean, when are we going to see Errol Spence and Bud Crawford? Who knows? I mean, it's promotional hell right now. So his first question is, why do we even want to use a sport that is a, and I use this, um, his terminology here, structural disaster as a benchmark for MMA in pushing the Ali Act expansion? Well, I, I guess I, I have a couple of pushback. One is I don't think boxing is the disaster some people make it out to be. There is problems with boxing. It's been, it has been ripe with corruption through its history. And that's gone back a long ways. It's just full of corruption. You know, the mafia was, used to be involved. Uh, you know, of course, is was the mafia involved in the UFC? Uh, you know, we can argue that, too, considering <laughs> who's, who's, who runs the UFC. But anyways, I digress. But it's always had organized crime influences. They've been kind of pushed out more recently, although there's Kinnaman and uh, 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 Kinahan in uh, Europe involvement. Uh, is he worse than Kadyrov? I don't know, but still. Uh, but... Yes, it's had a lot of problems, and also, but the idea that we don't get the best, yeah, we don't always. We are often left disappointed. But we are going to get Lomachenko versus Haney coming up. That's a that's yeah, a big that's fight, a right? We, that's a big one. Yeah, we are going to get Ryan Garcia versus Tank Davis. That's another big fight. Mm-hmm. We're going to get supposedly we. It seems very likely we're going to get Usyk versus Fury, a unification. We've had numerous unification bouts mm-hmm. with champions lately, uh, undisputed uh, champions. So. Those are all very positive in the sport. We got Fold versus Inouye coming up. That's a huge fight. So there are big fights being made, but it doesn't seem consistent. And also the sausage, witnessing the sausage being made, the way the the, the negotiating problem gets annoying as a fan of boxing. And so there are some problems, and I'm not going to deny it. Boxing has its issues. And there's a lot I would fix in boxing too. But the idea that, boxing that we shouldn't we shouldn't compare in any way to boxing where the where the boxers the product makes more of the money i think is unfair because what people are saying when they say uh the the mma model is referred because it's so good for fans is basically we want the fighters to be indentured servants because we want the fighters to have no say when they can fight who they can fight uh how they can fight uh no say and if they can leave a promotion or not Basically, we want them to be the, all the terms be dictated to them, and I I really do not like that idea, especially in a sport where it's it's a half a sport, it's half spectacle. Two people are entering the cage to beat the crap out of it for our entertainment, right? And so, I would like them to be able to ask as much as possible, of, to be paid as much as possible, and to, and and to ask us to pay them as much possible to go through the process of shortening their lives for our entertainment. And so I have no problem with that. I think the problem in boxing is that we, we're going to talk about the Ali Act insp- expansion is the Ali Act isn't fully enforced. And, and the real problem with boxing is not the, you know, we always say that the promoters aren't doing their job. The promoters have to think of the better the sport and work together. The problem in boxing is the sanctioning organizations aren't doing their job. It's their job to make it a sport. The boxers and pr- the promoters are there to make money. The boxers are there to be prize fighters. But the sporting aspect is the, the focus of the sanctioning organizations and the athletic commissions. The sanctioning organizations are the only one 
that the Ali Act has it in the rules that they have to be objective. The sanctioning organizations are the only one that have mission statements about how it's their job to improve the sport. So the, the people that are being that are failing the sport tremendously are, really falls to the sanctioning organization. So something has to be done about them. But the idea that fighters shouldn't get more money and shouldn't get more freedom because it ruins our, our fandom, I, I just I have a hard time agreeing with it because I'm willing to give up some of my enjoyment for people not to be treated like indentured servants. We don't need feudalism. I, I agree 100%. And you you skip forward into one of his questions. And so I'm going to backtrack just for our fans to hear what his question was. He wanted to know why it is imperative that MMA fighters be paid their free market value. And he cited a bunch of instances basically saying that in order to have a successful sport, isn't it imperative that both the athletes and the fans are taken care of? And he seems to think that in boxing, this is clearly not the case for the fans. I would disagree because we are, as John stated, getting a lot of good boxing matches. We don't always get the ones we want, but there's always going to be wrinkles like that. It's unfortunate, but things happen. Now, he did have a second question. He said a lot of people compare the UFC's revenue split, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 to 18%, as John has reported on numerous times. And with those of the major league sports raking in somewhere in the neighborhood of 50%, is this a fair comparison considering the UFC's margins are 50% and profitability is critical to it because it is a publicly traded company, whereas sports team franchises are generally bought for their asset appreciation as opposed to profitability. First of all, I don't think the, the fact that it's a publicly traded company has, should have any impact on what the weight share is because the reason it's publicly traded is because they went the route of an IPO to raise money to, to help finance the purchase they did in the first place and the valuation of the company uh, because the, the wage share is so low. The question is, what, what percentage of the revenue are the fighters bringing in? What share of the revenue are the promotion bringing in, right? In, in sports, it's true. Okay, well, he talked about before there's no such thing as a fair market, uh, a free market in other sports because it negatively affects the, the league's fan bases and, and competition levels, mm-hmm. which is true. But the other sports, the other league sports, the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, they have collective bargaining agreements. They have antitrust exemptions because the 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 the, the owners, I was going to say the promoters in this case, but the owners of the teams have struck a collective bargaining agreement with the players, giving them the right to violate antitrust law because the, the way those leagues work and as collusion is a violation of the Sherman Act. Mm. We are saying we are not going to sue you for antitrust violations. We're going to let you abuse antitrust law as long as you have a collective bargaining agreement with us. That'll give you that's our agreement with you to have permission. And in exchange for that, we the players either get all these free options, these free agent options, like in baseball, or we get a weight share, like in some of the other leagues. But we've basically come down to the over time the idea that the leagues themselves get 50% of the revenue to run the leagues and because of their, their brand awareness and all the stuff they do. And the players are worth 50%. That Basically there's a split in the middle that each party is worth about half the value to the league. And that's why they get 50%. So the problem with 
UFC is, yes, we'd say it's better that the UFC runs it the way they do and they have complete control, but there is, there's no antitrust exemption for them. They are just running the league the way they want. And, and so what value do the players, the, the fighters bring? If the UFC is the person bringing all the value, then why do they have such restrictive contracts? They shouldn't care if fighters want to leave because the fighters won't make any money anywhere else because the UFC is all anybody cares about. And they're the ones bringing in all the revenue because the UFC's ability to, to magically promote the sport so great. But yet they have these really restrictive contracts. And that tells me that the UFC knows that those fighters are a major portion of the value to the, the UFC, especially the key fighters, as we saw with the recent contract changes. The guys like Francis Ngannou, who are leaving, the future France and Ghana, they're not going to let leave. Those are the guys that are helping drive up the value of UFC. Those are the people being paid much, much less than they probably would in a competitive market. So I guess the solution for me would be, how can we keep something where we have a, a structured system where the best can fight the best, but the fighters can can realize their, their, uh, their share of the income and i guess the to me the best way is don't restrict their contracts let them fight it out and on top of that if we did have a single if we did have a uh, let's say uh, a, an independent sanctuary organization that did the titles we there's no reason that says we need four of them like in boxing that that the history of boxing led to those four if we if we're going to say we're going to organize fighters let's say into a association my dream would be if we have an association, why not go the next step and have the association create their own sanctioning organization? Now you have one title that anybody can fight over. The, so, the associate can protect the the objectivity of that title, and so the 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 incentive for fighters would be like, we are going to give you a chance to fight for this title, which will increase your value, but you have to defend it on our guidelines. But you're not bound to a promotion that then can dictate the terms. You can shop around by still being able to fight for that title. In a perfect world. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a little bit fantasy there, yes. but. So would it be fair to say that what the UFC is best at, what, they, what the value they bring to the UFC <laughs> is that they are excellent at monetizing their assets? Oh, yeah. That, they do a great job of that. They that's... monetize everything. They, they leverage their position all the time and but and extract are, from the fighters. Exactly. And what are their assets? The fighters. Yeah, I mean, the, I think one thing people worry, they think that if the UFC doesn't have this control, and let, let's say the, the market splits up a little bit, that you, MMA won't be as popular. But will MMA not be as popular or the UFC? If UFC, if, if MMA takes a big hit because the UFC takes a hit, then we really haven't grown the sport. We just grew at UFC. We didn't grow MMA. And, and let's say... UFC takes a hit because we're having some problems because the fighters are negotiating longer and making more money. Well, even if the UFC revenues got cut in half, 50%, but the fighters were getting like, let's say, boxing splits, they would still get a raise. They'd be getting paid twice as much. So I guess the I, to me it's always, is, is it part of the thing that people like the idea that the UFC is so big and makes so much, more, so much money? Or are they, because even if they made less money, but the fighters had more freedom in some ways, the fighters would be making more money. I think I'd prefer that. I'd prefer a smaller UFC where the fighters are making more money than a, than a, just a giantly massive UFC where the fighters are making much. Yep. 
that's where we're also getting all these watered down fights. But that's a that's another story for another day. We had questions from other people, as I mentioned earlier in the show at the beginning. This one comes from Sanchez Manica. He says, instead of signing a washed Pettis for eight hundred thousand a fight or million dollar tournaments. Why doesn't Bellator, for instance, focus on signing the whole UFC bantamweight division? Some of those guys have name value yet make less than 100000 a fight. If they were able to get 60% of the top 10 fighters, that would be a much bigger blow to the UFC. To piggyback off this, why don't you guys, why don't guys with real name value like Patty or Dustin, just fight out their UFC contracts and get paid somewhere else. Well, well, actually, there's there's two issues with this, and and uh, I mean, it would it makes sense. Like, why doesn't someone you know? Um, you see this in boxing where promoters will uh, will monopolize a, a weight division so they can put on all the big fights in that weight division, right? PBC tries to do that. You see, uh, uh, right now, Top Rank's kind of doing it a little bit in the, the lightweight division or uh, super lightweight, actually, but 140 pounds. So you see this effort being done at times in boxing. So why doesn't an MMA promotion do this where they get all the best fighters? Because UFC doesn't pay most of those guys much. The problem is most of them are currently under contract. The top guys are currently under contract to UFC. So you have have two dilemmas here. So they're currently under contract. So you have to wait till they become free agents and and then leave. But most of them do not generate revenue, really, right? The, the real revenue is generated by the top guys. If you follow the history of boxing, if you follow even the history of the UFC before the CSPN deal, you see select few fighters are generating all the revenue. And most of it are the champions, the top guys, not even all the champions. So the key for the UFC would be we want to get the top, the champions, but the champions are locked into these contracts. Now the champions locked into a, a long-term chip contract often with a championship clause. But the, the top contenders, often to get a shot at the champion, you have to sign a long, long-term long contract. Sean O'Malley just did that, right? So uh, the hard part is getting those very top select guys. And without getting them, the guys below them aren't as valuable, and they want to have a chance to fight the, for the title because that increases, you know, first of all, that's why you're there, to prove you're the best. But also it increases your renown so you can start asking for more money when you get to the top. So you have this dilemma where it's a network effect. The top guys are locked into the UFC. They can't leave. The next tier below them have to sign with the UFC to get a chance to be the top guy. And it works its way down because now all the prestige is in the UFC. And that's the other dilemma. Because the people have been conditioned for so long, not just the fans, but the fighters, the prestige is fighting with the UFC. So even if you're making a little bit less, you would either fight with UFC because that's where people are going to recognize you as an athlete, as a top fighter. They're not going to recognize you that if you go somewhere else. And so you have all these hurdles to overcome. So the only way you could do this is, as we talked earlier, is you need the top, the champions, to have the ability to basically exit the UFC. And and it works in reverse, too. All the other promotions do the same. But we talk about the UFC because UFC is the only one setting the price because they're the 800-pound grill in the sport. All the other promotions who maybe conduct themselves like the UFC – they're just following the price that was set by the UFC. 
All right. Now we had a question from a fighter that would like to remain anonymous, a UFC fighter. So here is his question. Hey, John, I just read your most recent work on the changes to UFC contracts. My question is, if I have to sign this new contract, would it impact my ability to be a part of the current class actions? Well, actually, I got this from a couple people, but yeah, this was one specific fighter sent me this, mm. and uh, we did uh, we did a whole podcast about this. And then me and Anton wrote uh, an article on Bloody Elbow about the changes to the UFC contracts, and one of them is they have an arbitration clause and an antitrust waiver. And if, so, if you sign the new contract, they have the, the new contracts coming up for the UFC. If you sign it, that means you cannot take part of class actions. So currently, there's two class actions underway. There's the, the Lee versus Zupa class action that was filed by Kung Lee, John Fitch, Cal Kingsbury, uh, Nate Corey, and all the others that covers from 2010 to Jan June 30th, 2017. And then there's a separate class action that was filed July 1st, 2017, that runs up till today and runs into the indefinite future until they put a, a limit on it, that was filed by Cajun Johnson and, and, and C.B. Dalloway is also named plaintiff on that one. And so if you're a fighter today, you technically are, have the potential to be a member of the, the, the Johnson B. Zupa class. And so if you sign this new contract, you've waived it. You can, if let's say that class gets class certified, which means you are automatically enrolled as a plaintiff, you don't have to do anything. Well, you because you signed that waiver, you've actually opted out. You are not part of that class. And if they win a settlement or, or win damages, you would not get damages. You'd have to go to arbitration, not to trial arbitration to win the damages yourself. But it also affects earlier dates. So if you sign that waiver, you can't, even if let's say you've been in the UFC for years, you cannot be part of that Johnson lawsuit. So you basically, not only are you saying you won't take part of class actions now, you will not be part of the previous class act. Your previous fights will not be part of the class. The one exception, there's a carve out for the Lee versus Zupa case 2010 to 2017, because of the uh, precedent set in the court, since it's already been indicated been class certified, they they put a, uh, a carve out for that. So if you've been fighting in the UFC, if you fought in the UFC uh, or in Zupa, and strike when Zupa and Strikeforce during that time, if you fought during that time, those fights would still make you eligible to be a member of that class. As soon as the, if the class is certified, you are automatically eligible and join that class. You don't have to do anything. And if they win damage or settlement, your fights during that per period, you would win some damages. So for fighters in that situation, you kind of have to weigh. Let's say you're, you know, you're on the your bottom tier, maybe or whatever, or you know, your end of your career, you might have to weigh: is it worth signing up to fight a couple more fights for the UFC, or do you think you want to take the risk or take the gamble they might win a settlement on the Johnson and collect on that? So now that our final topic comes from josh barnett and it's a series of four tweets that i'm going to read out we found this very interesting and uh, john has a, a good take on this so i'm going to read the tweets they came on january 27th this year to the mma community and he has community in quotes 
MMA doesn't need so much a straight pay correction as it could use a correction in contract structure and pay incentives. Contracts can be worked with lack of sufficient market and competition cannot. Most smaller shows can barely run and make a profit, and a lot of the U.S. uses so-called amateur shows instead so they can run a cheaper show and also have essentially pro-style fights without paying. This is a big problem. I think many things that have raised costs to run a show, like insurance, ambulances, and bonds, are for the best. But the constant incorrect comparison of MMA to, say, the NBA, or harping about fighter pay for opening to mid-card fighters is entirely incorrect and a waste of time. Being a professional fighter at its core is about fighting, about taking your destiny in your own hands, knowing full well that to be the best is a place few, if any, ever achieve. It is a gamble on yourself, not clock-in job layered with security. If you want that, don't be a fighter. John, tell me, what do you think? Well, there was some pushback from pe- readers on this that didn't agree with him because they thought he was, you know, basically not not siding with fighter pay for lower fighters. But I actually agree with them, and for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, and this is just my personal opinion, and some people might disagree with me, but uh, my personal opinion is one: being a fighter is not a positive social job, right? A positive job for society. It's not a net positive. It's not like a teacher. It's not like a doctor. It's not even like people working at a grocery store or a truck driver that are delivering goods. Basically, it's a purely a, an entertainment one. And for most fighters, very few people are entertained by it, right? It's a job that inflicts punishment, damage on them. So it's not a, a positive for society to incentivize people to do this. And what, what, it's a long way to get that. Is some people argue like just being a fighter means you should be paid a certain amount of money. And I don't like that concept because there's a lot of people that shouldn't be fighters. I don't think just entering the cage any, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you should make several thousand dollars to incentivize people that are that are at the desperate people to keep showing up to take damage because it's a form of income. I, I think that would be it'd be a horrible thing to do, right? And but the the argument then the reverse is people look at it and say that oh that means you don't think UFC fighters should get paid more. No, the difference is UFC fighters, the people that are fighting in the UFC, they're fighting for a promotion that's making a billion dollars, that are selling the content to their fights for hundreds of millions. And I think they deserve a cut of that. But I'm just saying that in general, just being a fighter doesn't mean you deserve a lot of money. This also does so go with some UFC prelims because there's no standard to be a UFC fighter, right? UFC being Sean Strickland talked about that. There's no barrier to entry to the UFC. And I think that's somewhat misleading because it is hard to become a rank fighter in the UFC. It's hard to become a challenger. It's hard to become a champion. It's hard to be one of the best in the world. And and so those people, there should be some incentive. There should be some way to, so they can they can be rewarded for their scarcity. But as we talk constantly on Care Don't Care, there are some cards where you're amazed at who's on the card. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no there's no quality standard for getting the UFC. You being in the UFC means there was a spot on the card. There are people ranked like 400 to 500, 500 in a weight division fighting in the UFC. I'm I, like, how is that the best of the best, right? What that means is the UFC just has a spot to fill. Now, I think they deserve some money because they're filling up cards that uh, that the UFC is making a lot of money. But it that 
I'm not sure. We I don't feel I have to go out of their way. In other words, I don't feel that they need to be incredibly compensated. I would like to see a way that the UFC feels incentive to put better people on the cards, better fighters. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that should be compensated. And so for I think what Barnett was trying to say, and I, I can't put words in it because I don't know exactly what he was getting at, but my, my interpretation should be we should be focused on the contracts to make them less restrictive. Because if they're less restrictive, right, if we could do something about that, then fighters could negotiate more income for themselves, especially fighters that had leverage. If they could, if they, if we had fighters with more mobility, it could produce more competition because other promotions could get access to key fighters to make themselves more uh, profitable. And also, I mean, this is goes back to the the whole idea of having a sanctioning organization with independent titles that are objective. If you have that, that's leverage for a fighter because if he has a title that he owns then the promoters have to compete to get that title or that ranking. And so that would increase leverage if he's allowed to go other places and bring that title. And that would also mean fighters lower down the tier where there's no incentive to put money into them. A promoter might side, decide, like, I have a young fighter that looks great. I'm going to sign him for a long year, long-term deal, put a lot of money into him because eventually he's going to rise up the ranks to a high enough rank where I can make money off him. And which would increase money for those at the bottom because promoters would have an incentive to invest in those guys. So that was my understanding of what he said. And I kind of agree with them. But again, it's it's it sounds harsh to fighters. But my personal opinion is I would like fighters to make as much of the revenue they're generating as possible. Make so much, in fact, that when it became time that they were heading down the, the rankings, heading down their, their careers, they can exit the sport with as much of their brains as possible and not continue to feel that they have to fight because they're the, the, the way it's structured now is longevity is rewarded. Not it's not, it's more longevity is rewarded and not, uh, not your position, your actual performance. And that the truth. So John, we're at the end of the episode. Can you give us an idea what we can expect for the next one? Because from what I understand, you got some really hot stuff coming through the uh, mail pipeline. Yes. Well, next one, we talked about this briefly, but we did a UFC contract. We've done three episodes now on UFC contracts. Next, I I have several PFL and Bellator contracts. We are going to walk through the competitors' contracts. And, and so we can see what's in those and what's it like to sign a deal with those promotions. Ooh, I am excited. So, kids, do me a favor. Follow this guy on social media. He is at Hey Not The Face. If you have questions for the show, you can email him. Hey, not the face at gmail.com or myself, Crooklyn949 at gmail.com. You can also DM either one of us on Twitter. I'm Crooklyn MMA. Again, he is at Hey, not the face. So on that note, we're going to wrap it up. You know the routine. Until next time, please stay safe. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. 
Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, the Level Change Podcast, the MMA Bivis Section, the 6th Round Post-Fight Show, 6th Round Retro, the MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, exclusive fighter interviews, show money, guest podcasts, the Hey Not The Face podcast, and radio-style play-by-play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bloody Elbow blog, and as always, on BloodyElbow.com. <laughs>